can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're looking at verses 18 through 35 this afternoon. And I've also provided a handout for the afternoon service, if you would like to follow along there with the, the headings and the questions to reflect upon throughout the week. Um, it's easy to follow Jesus when we are getting everything we want out of life. Right? When it seems like everything's just falling into place, you get the job you asked for, you get the raise you wanted, um, everyone is on your side cheering you on, everything's just going wonderfully. It's peachy. Right? When you have it all going your way, I think it, it's easy in those times to be faithful. At least it can feel like that. Sometimes it's the, that's the hardest time because we become presumptuous of God's grace in our lives and we start to think that we've done it ourselves. Right? So that can be the challenge in those situations. But, but what happens when, you're, when things are not going as you would hope? They're not going according to the plan you would write for yourself. How do you respond when everything you touch seems to fall apart? What do you do when you're hindered from achieving your goals or simply facing trial after trial? Nothing seems to be working. During those times, do you turn to God? Can you be honest with Him in prayer? Think about those times in your life. Think about where you tend to go during those seasons. Do you do you? genuinely open God's word, do you, do you cry out to him in prayer? Or do you shut down and just isolate yourself, not want to interact with anyone? I think our response to Jesus, including how we deal with our own doubts about our circumstances, about uh, his revelation, how we respond to him will either lead to a strengthening of our faith or it will reveal our rejection of him. Right? There's an ongoing need for repentance and faith. Right? And so we come to him in, in justification and we receive you know, by, through faith and repentance and we're, we're declared right with our God. And then there's fruit that follows, right? There's the fruit of repentance. There's the fruit of a life that is submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord. And if that fruit is not present, it calls into question that initial response to Jesus. There's nothing else it could do. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says this, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. You think, wait a second, that should have been at the front, right? If we deny him, he'll deny us. But it's at the end of this list of things that reflect upon a life of enduring in Christ, right? If we died with him, then we will also live with him. And if we endure, we, we will also reign with him. 
But if we deny him, he will deny us. I think that's a part of what we see in this passage in multiple different ways. First of all, in the questions that John brings to Jesus, and then we'll see in the questions that Jesus presents to the crowd, and finally the condemnation he brings upon this generation, the generation that he was speaking to. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we once again open your word and we depend upon your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that are softened to this truth to respond in obedience. Lord, we know that this can be a challenging text for us to hear and and to respond appropriately to. But Lord, help us to not neglect this hard work. Help us not to neglect these hard questions. And in the end, to see how you have brought us through. To see how, how Christ is continually perfecting that work that he began. And so, Lord, help us to be reminded of that as we sit under this text from Luke. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared, God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man 
has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we'll look at this first section here, verses 18 through 23, which is John's, John questions Jesus. So John hears a report from his disciples. The, the disciples have, in verse 18, the the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So presumably this report would have included the things that he had just taught and also the things that he was doing. It would have included the things he spoke about, like the blessings and the woes in chapter 6, uh, the golden rule, the, spiritual, uh, the spiritually fruitful and unfruitful disciples. So all of these things would have been told to John and then he also would have talked or learned about the activities that Jesus was doing, accomplishing, how he healed the centurion's servant and raised the widow's son in the previous passage. And so John, hearing all of these things, sends back a curious question, one that we're not really expecting John the Baptist to ask. He wonders if Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Are you indeed the one who was to come? The very asking of the question implies a level of doubt. Right? It implies a level of, of, of concern about what he is seeing or what's, what he's hearing. You say, well, what, is, what has he heard or, or seen that would cause him to doubt? It's hard for us to comprehend. Didn't John know all of the promises that were fulfilled at the birth of Christ? Wasn't it miraculous? His, wasn't his own birth miraculous? Didn't his parents teach him all of these things? Didn't, didn't he see Jesus as a child and know him growing up to be the Messiah? Well, if that was the case, and I think it was that he knew Jesus to be the Messiah, these questions are really about getting Jesus to the next phase of ministry, sort of like challenging him, pushing him on, right? Right? There's still a part that you've left undone, Jesus. You keep healing people. You keep calling even judgment upon people. But I don't hear of anything actually taking place. I, in fact, I'm still in prison, about to be beheaded, right? I mean, he's starting to, to question what Jesus is doing. Why hasn't Jesus rescued him? So he's questioning the kind of ministry that Jesus is still engaged in. And this was John's proclamation in his own baptism. In Luke chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, as people were coming out to be baptized by John, he was proclaiming to them these things. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There was a component of judgment to this preaching. There was an expectation of judgment that the Messiah would be responsible for bringing upon those who were rejecting him, those who were oppressing his people. And so essentially, he's asking Jesus why he has not done all that the Messiah was supposed to do. Namely, to bring judgment 
upon Rome, to bring judgment upon their oppressors. Maybe he's also thinking that by now I should have been released. So Jesus' answer comes back as a clear reminder to John that indeed he is accomplishing the work of the Messiah. And John would have been thoroughly familiar with, these, with this explanation. Right? Most of it comes out of Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, and 61, 1 through 2. Two sections of Isaiah Jesus kind of combines in his answer. Yes, I'm doing the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. And in fact, the Qumran scrolls that have been discovered, which were in between the Testaments, right? It was a, uh, scrolls that were preserved from both the Old Testament as well as teachings from rabbis. Well, it shows that they believed and interpreted these scriptures to be messianic. And so they were fully expecting the Messiah to do these things. And that's what Jesus points to. Ironically, you think about it, the, the, de- the report that the disciples had given to John at the very beginning of this passage probably included the same kinds of things, right? Almost an identical report. You've already heard this. But Jesus' final sentence is, is telling. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 23. All right, I'm doing all of these things, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Had John become offended by Jesus' lack of political action? I think that's the most plausible. Um, why hadn't Jesus set John free? I think those were all beginning to sort of grate upon John. So he needed to, he needed to ask Jesus about this. And he probably felt like he had been forgotten. He was, was Jesus even worried or concerned about John? And Jesus' answer is basically telling John, wait. So John is looking for a fulfillment that remained in the future. Right? The things that, that he was expecting Jesus to do in his first coming, he indeed will do. But it wasn't the right time. And so whatever lies behind these questions, they clearly indicate in John a lack of contentment. Right? He's either discontent with his own circumstances, being in prison, or he's discontent with the overall ministry that Jesus has currently uh, engaged in. Maybe even both. Maybe it's a combination. Right? He's, he's wondering when the judgment's going to fall. And is this not consistent with our own trials and challenges, right? Unmet expectations are at the root of a significant number of conflicts. Uh, if you've read about just about any book on marriage, it'll have a chapter on unmet expectations and how deadly they can be. It's not just an issue that's relevant in marriage, but it does have an impact on all relationships. Right? We expect our friends to act a certain way to do a certain thing, to be there for us. Um, our work relationships, and especially our relationship with God, what we expect God to do. And so we sort of justify ourselves. If he doesn't follow through on something we're expecting him to do, if he doesn't meet that expectation, then we kind of say, well, then I'm not going to take the time out of my day to give to him. 
maybe, maybe that describes your approach at times in, in those moments of frustration, in those moments of doubt as John here was going through. The covenant people have rarely been content at any age with the limited amount of revelation that God has given them. Right? We are always seeking for more answers some depth of meaning that's just not provided. And so the question for you to reflect upon is, have you learned to be content with the revealed will of God? Or do you constantly fill yourself with worry about things that are off in the future? Rarely does Jesus meet our every expectation, even in any given passage, right? As we read the Gospels, we think Jesus should be doing something other than what he's doing. And at times we, we may think he's too soft, other times we think he's too harsh. And so again, the question is, are, we, are you satisfied with who Jesus is, how he's revealed in Scripture? Are you content with your Lord? Do you trust that he knows more than you in every situation you will, you will experience or you are experiencing right now? Can you trust him with that? When Jesus turns his attention from John's disciples to the crowd, and he begins to question them and, and, their, and their belief about John, their assumptions about John. And the crowd is a mixture, right? Jesus, he begins to question their motives in going out to the Jordan to listen to John. So the nature of his questions seems to indicate that their intentions were probably mixed, right? That some wanted to go see a wild man, some wanted to, uh, to see a prophet. And so Jesus asked them, he puts them on the spot, and he affirms that John was a prophet, and he quotes from Exodus 23.20 and Malachi 3.1. And in the context of those passages, they encourage the faithful, uh, or they encourage faithfulness among the covenant people of God, right? To remain steadfast, to be faithful. And in fact, there's no human being greater than John, as Jesus declares in this passage. But he adds a curious comment about that, saying that the least in the kingdom of God are greater than he. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Again, this, this creates a bit of a, a challenge. How do we understand this? Several commentaries go different directions here. Um, and so what does he mean? Jesus seems to be referring to those who were able to witness the full ministry of Jesus Christ, or at least to hear of the full ministry of Jesus Christ. So in other words, they've they will know of his cross and resurrection. Um, the least person who accepts Jesus' teaching, having entered into the new covenant kingdom of God, are better off than any Old Testament saint because they've experienced the fulfillment of what John could only prophesy about and what the Old Testament prophets only pointed forward to. Anyone who has come under the new covenant has an understanding that's, that's far greater. Right? You, you can have a confidence 
in what he's accomplished. And so he's speaking of those who've witnessed what John had only anticipated. Right? And even because John's life will be cut short, he doesn't even get to see the fulfillment of, of the cross and the resurrection. So this is how J.C. Ryle comments on it. He says, Jesus declares that the religious light of the least disciple who lived after his crucifixion and resurrection would be far greater than that of John the Baptist, who died before those mighty events took place. The weakest believing hearer of St. Paul would understand things by the light of Christ's death on the cross, which John the Baptist could never have explained. And so as the recipients of the New Testament, we should be filled with gratitude that those of us with the the humblest level of knowledge uh, about the gospel have more light than even the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. That's a, a privilege to have the scriptures that we have. But in the text, it says that those who had been baptized by John agreed with everything Jesus says. Those who had rejected John's baptism also reject everything Jesus says. And so in other words, those who recognized their need to repent under John's preaching were willing to accept the message of Christ, the the gospel. Those who were filled with pride justified themselves by their actions and rejected any notion that they needed to repent. They're not in the wrong. John Owen says, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. They're not compatible. You can't take your sin lightly and think God is great. And Kent Hughes says this, a shallow or forgotten understanding of sin is a road to self-righteousness. Like the man who came to the preacher after the sermon and said, you know, I can't swallow what you said about depravity. Fortunately, the preacher had his wits and responded, that's all right, it's already within you. You don't need to swallow this truth. You're already depraved. It was a good response. But the, the question personally for you is, has pride prevented you from admitting that? And I, or, or maybe you've admitted of some things, and I needed help here with this particular sin, but these other areas, I'm good. Has pride prevented you from admitting your sin, from repenting of it, and receiving the grace that's offered in the gospel? They, they go together. And you can't have the gospel without repentance. And as I said in the beginning, there's, there's this ongoing need for that response to the truth revealed in Scripture. Those who believe in Jesus recognize what Joseph Hart says so well in his hymn, Come, you sinners, poor and needy. One verse he says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth, is to fill your need of him. How do you know your need of him? Well, it's because you have a right understanding of your sin, of your depravity. And when you do have that right understanding, there is nowhere else to turn. There is no one else who offers hope. 
No one else who offers restoration. And so to turn your back in isolation upon the church, as we so often do, is the exact opposite of how we need to respond. Those who reject the Lord will be the recipients of his condemnation. And that's what he he concludes with here. It's a harsh word. Verses 31 through 35. Jesus condemns this generation. I mean, primarily he's, in, he's thinking in terms of the Pharisees, the Pharisees' followers, those who had rejected John the Baptist, those who were continuing in that line of thought. And, and so for, for their rejection um, of John and for their rejection of Jesus, they received condemnation. He compares them to children. He says, we played the flute. They're, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. So the picture is like the marketplace is, is just where all the central activity in the city takes place. And so maybe the parents are shopping and the children are playing around and one group is calling to another. But, but there's, there's people that are just unwilling to participate no matter what you offer. You say, we play a a song for you, but you wouldn't dance. So they, so the, they, they think, well, okay, they, he doesn't feel like dancing right now. Well, let's do something else. Let's play a dirge. But we played a dirge and you wouldn't weep. Right? So we play wedding and you won't dance. We play funeral and you won't weep. It's like you just won't participate no matter what. There's never an appropriate time for you to participate. You simply want to be by yourself. You want to isolate yourselves. That's what he's saying about this generation. He's comparing them to children like that who are not satisfied by anything. Jesus follows this illustration with the explanation of this generation being rejected. They rejected John as crazy because he fasted, yet they reject the Son of Man as a glutton and a drunkard because he feasts. There's no pleasing them. Again, interestingly enough, the, the challenge that John had brought of not, wanting, of not hearing judgment is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Once again, talking about the judgment that will come. Jesus didn't shy away from judgment. John the Baptist was unsatisfied with the lack of fulfillment of this judgment, but Jesus was proclaiming several warnings throughout his teaching ministry. But it was a matter of seeing that come to fulfillment, right? seeing that judgment come to pass that John was questioning. So the conclusion to our passage is a bit difficult to understand. Once again, he says, wisdom is justified by all her children. And so he compares this generation to the children who aren't satisfied with anything. And, and he says, you're, you're calling John a demoniac because he fasts and you're calling Jesus a glutton and a drunkard because he feasts. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What, is, what does he mean by that? Well, the, I think the, what makes the most sense is that Jesus is referring to those who accepted his teaching. It's just a, another way of saying what he is saying in this whole context, right? The point seems to be that wisdom is proven by the fruit that it bears, and that fruit being one of acceptance, right? One of receiving Jesus and his teaching not rejecting him. So those who reject him or those who deny him, he will deny, he will condemn. 
Right? So are we willing to follow Jesus according to his terms? It's another question to reflect upon. We'll summarize in this teaching here with, you know, John questions Jesus, and we see a man who was filled with, with great understanding, John the Baptist, and yet still struggling with doubts of his own. But what did he do with that? He doesn't reject Jesus. He takes his doubts to Jesus. He brought his questions to him as best he could being in prison himself. And then Jesus questions the crowd, which is mixed with those who believe and those who've rejected him. And once again, they're given this opportunity to profess faith in Christ. And Jesus concludes with this condemnation of a generation that has rejected him that will ultimately put him on the cross. Maybe down the road, maybe after they hear of the resurrection or or see Jesus after the resurrection, they would come back to this point and be reminded that they need to respond in faith. I like how Daryl Bach puts it. He says that this passage ultimately makes it clear that Jesus is the only way. The blessing of being greater than a prophet comes only from following his call to enter into God's grace and to dance to the music of the divine musician. Kind of applying that, that description of the children who weren't satisfied, right? The only, the only way, the only proper response is to come to Jesus and to dance to the music of the divine musician as he's revealed himself. So following Jesus begins with repentance and faith and it continues in that pattern. Followers of Christ manifest their faith by their perseverance. And so let's trust him to complete that work that he began in us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this.